Uh, let, us, let us pray to our great, glorious God this evening. Our great God who marks every day of our life with faithfulness. We pray to you that you would indeed feed us with your food tonight so that we may be nourished and strengthened to go into this world with strength, with courage, with comfort, and with proclamation. I pray now that you'd help your servant to speak your words clearly and effectively to your flock here tonight. In your son's name, amen. Listen, I like puzzles, just like the next guy. But uh, some people, frankly, have too much time on their hands. It's called the Fishy Impossibles Jigsaw Puzzle. It is made up of a measly 755 pieces. Uh, The tricky part is that there are no definable edge pieces, and there are five red herring pieces. That's kind of how every puzzle is for me. Or if that's not hard enough for you, you could try a slightly more difficult one. It's called the double-sided marbles jigsaw puzzle. It is 1,000 pieces, and as you would uh, gather from the name, it is a a puzzle with a picture of marbles all over it. The trick of this puzzle is it is a mirror image on both sides, so you can't rely on the back to figure out where you're at. And if that's not impossible enough, this next puzzle has impossible in the name. It's called Mission Impossible Blank Jigsaw Puzzle. It is only 500 pieces, but it has blank black pieces on both sides. But none of those compare. None of those compare to this next puzzle. It's called The World's Largest Puzzle, and it's by Kodak. It is made up of 51,300 pieces. It just had to win. Uh, when it is finally made, it, it stretches 30 feet long. It is, according to Amazon, 40 pounds. You need a, uh, a dolly to get it in your front door. It consists of 27 pictures of world wonders. And to make it easier on you, it comes in 27 separately packaged sections of 1,900 pieces apiece, which then can be joined together once you're done. Thank you, Kodak. We bow to you for your kindness. You can order it today, actually, on Amazon. It is only $529.99, plus tax, of course. Or if you can't quite swing that, it is, all, all, it is always acceptable to ch- choose the 18 easy payments for $29.44 option. Um, puzzles like this, they say, take good puzzlers four to six months. I watched a time-lapse video that took one puzzler n- 10 months to do. Uh, Don't worry, though, if you lose a piece in this long duration of construction, which is definitely a possibility if you ask me, you can always buy replacement pieces. In order to get one of these replacement pieces, you just have to set up the entire puzzle and then send them the coordinates of the missing piece, and they'll ship it right to you. And and Amazon, uh, Amazon has the audacity to include in their advertisement that this is for 12 and up. You think? 
Can you imagine doing a puzzle without the picture on, on the outside? Can you imagine doing that Kodak puzzle without that helpful image? It would be impossible. Can you imagine starting a puzzle and having no idea what the picture was and just kind of trying to work your way through it? Now, now I do love puzzles, I do. And I love that amazing sense when the last piece goes into place and you see the whole picture come together slowly but surely. If you don't know the big picture, though, you'll struggle. You'll struggle with all of these pieces, and you'll look at them, all of these little images, and you'll say, what in the world does this have to do with this puzzle? This must be the wrong piece. Individual pieces don't make much sense. Uh, Same way with sections of Scripture often, they act this way, like the one before us tonight. Uh, The narrative seems to string together a series of random and even frustrating events that don't seem to make much sense in and of themselves at times, but when you put them all together, when the last piece is in place, you can see the center and it all makes sense. And it is lovely, and it is beautiful, and it is encouraging. Turn to 1 Samuel 23. 1 Samuel 23. There is a literary device called a chiasm, and we see that in this passage. Uh, basic, the basic idea is uh, the narrative follows an X pattern, and the center of the narrative is the center of the story. If you get the center, you get the message. The peripheral pictures kind of point to this center, and they, they mirror each other. And in this passage, our eyes should be drawn to the middle. This is what the narrator's trying to do. He's trying to drive our eyes towards the middle to, to show the message. And everything that surrounds this central picture should be interpreted through the center. And this p- passage does teach us one central thing. And that one central thing is there are two perspectives in our life. Two perspectives in our day-to-day activities. There is the ground level of your perspiration, and there is the grand level of God's provision, of God's providence. These two things are happening every single day of our life. From the grand level, nothing happens, we see, outside of God's grand, marvelous provision, his sustaining, sovereign power, But from the ground level of our perspiration, life doesn't always make sense. That piece doesn't seem to really fit into the grand scheme, right? Sinks won't drain. Bills must be paid. Babies must be fed. Dinners need to be planned. Sweat needs to be spent. Blisters need to be popped. Sickness pulls you down. Situations leave you strapped. And on the spiritual level of all of that, this sin in your heart and in your life just keeps coming back and doesn't seem to make much sense. And the evil in our world that seems to surround us with resilience and pointlessness just keeps returning into our life. Sometimes we don't see the big picture of God's moves. We only see small pictures of life coming at us in its pointless pieces. It's helpful for us, therefore, to enter such seasons or such a life as this with a certain knowledge of God. 
And that's exactly what I would like to busy us with this evening. We're going to start by looking at a few of the individual pictures, the small pieces of the story, and work our way towards the center. I'm going to kind of title these images in very creative ways, as you'll discover in a few moments. Our first small picture is Surprising Saviors. Surprising Saviors. 1 Samuel 23, verse 1 says this, Now, they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Kailah and are robbing the threshing floors. The Philistines here, by the way, this is, this is a horrible attack from one of Israel's deepest enemies. And it seems like when you read 1 Samuel, they are always attacking. They are always raiding. And this nation, Kailah, or this city, that, as it were, the location is not necessarily a soft target. It is a well-fortified city with double gates and bars, as we see in verse 7. It was situated, though, right on the border of Judah and Philistine, and the Philistia. It's likely that the city was so well de- uh, defended because the Philistine raids were all too common, right? This was just another one of those pointless evils of living in a sin-soaked world. You always had Philistines invading, always had Philistines raiding. Now, unfortunately, even though Keilah's uh, walls and city was well fortified. Their threshing floor was apparently not. It did not have these double gates and bars. This was, however, the city's bread supply. It was purposely placed outside the city so that the wind could remove the chaff and not put it into your front living room. So yes, the people were safe, but the Philistines could afford to play a long game, so to speak, and starve them out. And by the way, this is also a horrible scene of leadership failure. Because as you read through 1 Samuel, you realize that while Saul is off chasing David around and butchering priests, the Philistines are having free game at Israelite, uh, Israelite towns and villages and so on and so forth. This is a faithlessness of Israel's king, as Proverbs 29.2 would tell you, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. Their lives are difficult. But here, here is where we meet God's surprising saviors in verse 2. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered, Arise and go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. Now why why are the men of David so squeamish in going to Keilah's help? Well, the answer seems Uh, clear that they didn't share David's shepherding heart for Israel. And they were basically saying, hey, it's one thing to play hide-and-seek with Saul in his own land. It's it's a total other thing to intentionally go off and fight a war in his territory. And now you want us to do his job for him as well? Uh, But David wins, and verse 5, David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Why is David a surprising savior here? Well, it's because this is not David's job. 
This is a job that Saul should be doing. This is his job, and he is not doing yet. David, once again, in the book of First and Second Samuel, proves himself to be the true king, the better king than Saul. And notice the faithfulness of God that we even begin to see in the center of this little tiny account, even though God's people are deserted by faithful leaders, the true king, Yahweh, refuses to completely abandon his people to their enemies. And this is a wonderful picture of God's faithfulness regardless of who our ruler is. God is our king, God is our ruler, and we have nothing to be afraid. So there we have surprising saviors. Let's move to our next smaller picture. This small picture is faithless brethren. Faithless brethren. Now, don't get too excited here as we're at the city of Keilah. Before you name one of your son's middle names, Keilah, uh, we should note that they didn't apparently learn much about the goodness and faithfulness of God. And isn't this just the way we are? We have God's work in our life, faithfulness, preserving, protecting, and we just turn against him and do things our own way. As we see in verse 6, when Abathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David, to Keilah, you've got to see First Samuel 22 for that, he came down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war, to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men, David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. And then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah. And they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. Notice Saul's words, though, there in verse 7. Notice the difference here between Saul and David. David seems to need and to want God's guidance and God's direction in his life. Saul doesn't seem to think he needs a priest or an ephod to discern God's will. Matter of fact, if you look back in 1 Samuel 22, Saul's efforts against the priesthood in his own, in his own bloody vengeance against them have actually given David this ephod, this priest, has run to David. The ability, therefore, to communicate with God clearly has been kind of given to David by Saul. But Saul doesn't seem to think he needs a priesthood or he needs an ephod. He seems to think he has God's will. He understands what God wants. And as a result, one man one man gets help and the other thinks he's got help but is actually wandering around truly lost. And sometimes that's the way people are, right? God must be on my side. Things are going well for me. 
I'll just keep going in the direction I am going, and that is Saul. Now, the question, why are these faithless brethren? Well, verse 1 introduces Keilah. Um, There was probably motivating reasons for why David wanted to save them, and that reason was because they were from the tribe of Judah. They were uh, fellows of the same tribe. But this makes their treachery even worse. Now, we shouldn't probably be too hard on them, of course, They were really caught between a rock and a hard place here. They surely are very thankful for David's help, but if they had to choose, they'd probably pick Philistines having a heyday with their uh, threshing floors over Saul butchering their population. So they are willing to give up David. Here's the small pictures we have so far, just so you can see the big picture. We've got first surprising saviors. We've got faithless brethren. And now let's move to our next surprising picture. Are you ready for this? It's really creative. Ready? Get your pens out. More faithless brethren. Verse 19, Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horish on the hill of Hikaliah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there. For it is told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you, and if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Verse 14 and 15 talk about this place, Ziph. This is five miles from Keilah. These were also men of David's own tribe, also fellow tribesmen of Judah. And notice what they say to Saul. They say in verse 20, do according to all your heart's desire. His own tribe uh, brethren are selling themselves to his enemies' desires. And notice how Saul responds. He he, he responds with uh, verse 21. He says, may you be blessed by the Lord for you have had compassion on me. Just a side note, this is not really the way a king would speak. At least not a real king who is in real control of his kingdom. Saul seems to be, in fact, surprised that these men of Judah would be loyal to him over David. These are faithless brethren. And notice the tension now comes and begins to reach a breaking point. The second half of verse 24 there. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in Arabah to the south of Jeshimon, and Saul and his men wanted to seek him, and David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon, and when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side of the mountain, and David was hurrying to get away from Saul. Notice they reference in verse 26, the mountain. 
It, w- it was probably a prominent hill that's known today. It was a hill that stood in the middle of a plain, and this is significant because it shows David's escape, his only route of escape to the east, would have been into open country, and there would have been no place to hide. And in verse 26, we get the picture of this military pincher movement. Saul is coming around. Whether he knew it or not, Saul was this close to capturing David. And notice the tension here in the narrative, right? The narrator jumps back and forth between Saul and David and Saul and David. Just switching off. It's, it's like a clip in a movie that the action is all coming together, the climax of the story is coming together, and you're seeing one scene, and then it jumps to the other, and then it jumps to the other, and it jumps back to the other. The tension is thick. Notice also the way the tension rises. It seems like it's all over for David. Saul is coming around. I always remember my dad had this just horrible tendency while we were watching really exciting movies. Does your dad do this too? We'd be right at the cliffhanger. He'd take the remote. He'd press pause. And he'd say, I guess this is the last episode of David in the Wilderness, folks. It's like, Come on, Dad, just turn it on. This tension is killing us. David appears to be on his last leg. And this is where we meet another scene. We've seen surprising saviors. We've seen faithless brethren. We've seen more faithless brethren. Another creative title for you. Even more surprising saviors. Verse 26, And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore the place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. Notice what timing. Think about all the logistics that went into this Philistine raiding campaign. And yet they decide to attack at precisely the moment of David's need. Just in enough time to stop Saul from catching David. And there's a very strong sovereign irony here. The very people that get David into trouble, in verse 1, the Philistines, are also used by God to get David out of trouble. Now here at the end of our narrative. Now let's, let's pull back. We're beginning to see the whole image, the whole picture, and we're about ready to put that last piece into the center and see the meaning of it all. We've got surprising saviors. We've got faithless brethren. We've got other faithless brethren. We've got other surprising saviors. Do you see the picture beginning to take shape? What do we learn about God on the grand level? The center tells us. Jump back to verse 14. And David remained in the stronghold in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph, and Saul sought him every day. But God did not give him 
into his hand. In the end, the reason why Saul could not capture David, could never seem to, he was always this close, but never, never could get his hands around David's neck, was because God was on David's side. God is in contrast to Saul. God is the one that's working here. And notice also what is side by side with this center image. We also see not only faithful providence there in 14, but in 15 through 18, we also see faithful friendship. Verse 15, David saw that Saul had come to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. Verse 18, And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horash, and Jonathan went home. Not only can Saul not capture David, his own son, which, notice, is emphasized because three times Jonathan is referred to as Saul's son in some way or form in that verse. His own son strengthens David. And he strengthens him in God, we see, verse 16 tells us. David is weak. David is tired. Perhaps David is beginning to lose, lose focus a little bit. Perhaps David is beginning to wonder, what about God's promises to me? What about this anointing? Maybe God just wasn't serious. Maybe I'm about to die here. He is reminding David. Jonathan is in a unique place to speak God's promises back to David and into David's life. And Jonathan, as it were, notice the language of hand, 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 is strengthening David by putting David's hand into God's hand. He reminds David of God's promises. What's the, what's the applicational takeaway from this centerpiece of the puzzle? Let me propose three applications, three takeaways that you can take from God's provision that we see in this memorable format. Notice first, God's provision is personal. Yes, Saul is personally out to get David, but he doesn't succeed because God is also personally out to secure David and show David his strength. And this, this proposes a question, the way Saul and David view God. What's your view of God? How do you think about God? Is He a personal God to you? Or is He like Saul? Saul has this theology of God. God is that big man upstairs. That's Saul's theology. Things are going well for me, so God must be on my side, right? I don't care to listen to him, but he's got to be on my side because things are going well for me. I've got a big man upstairs. That's Saul's theology. But notice David's covenant faithfulness theology. I don't need things to be going perfectly all the time in my life to know that God is on my side. I can count on his faithfulness in 100% of my circumstances. Not 99%, but 100%. Because he is a God that is personally covenanted loyalty to me. Personal faithfulness. He is a God whose provision is 
personal. And this is the theological big picture of the whole First and Second Samuel book. The book, if you didn't know, begins and ends with a song. It, end, it begins in 1 Samuel 2 with the song of Hannah, and it ends in 2 Samuel 22 through 23 with another song, a song of praise to David. And these, these kind of serve, if you, if you picture them like this, they kind of serve as the title sequence or the end credits of a movie. They kind of thunder home the themes of God that we have seen or are about to see. They're, they're, they're reminding us of the things we have seen of God, or they're preparing us for the things that we will see, right? You hear that, you hear that, those first chords of Star Wars, and you get excited, right? I know what I'm about to see. That's what these songs do at the beginning and the end of Samuel. For example, 2 Samuel 22, 1 says this, And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Verse 2 said, He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol Sheol, entangled me, and the snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord, to my God I called, and from his temple he heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. God's provision is personal. He comes. He comes to earth to deliver us from the dominion of darkness and transfer us into his own kingdom. And he, through the presence of the Holy Spirit, is with us always in this life. God's provision is personal. Not only is it personal, though, God's provision is promised. God's provision is promised. Jonathan strengthened David by reminding him of what? Of God's promises. Verse 17, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, knows this. God has made a covenant promise to David. He will make greater ones in the future. He has promised to set David on the throne. Matter of fact, if we jump back over to 2 Samuel 23, 5, David speaks of this covenant as the explanation for all of this faithfulness God has shown him. Once again, David is is not in God's favor because of something good he did, but because God made a promise to David. He says this in 23.5 of Second Samuel, He has made me an everlasting covenant, ordained, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and all my desire? Now perhaps you are thinking, well, that's not really that encouraging. He's David. He's kind of got a huge role to play in the kingdom. I'm just me. I could be a sheep to be slaughtered, according to Romans 8. I'm not sure I like 
that promise. It doesn't really connect well with the, the nitty-gritty of my life. Well, we do have something here. We have, as Del Ralph Davies uh, would call it, the Davidic protection principle. And it's basically this. God will keep you safe and provide everything you need to accomplish his will until his work for you is done, and then you can die. The Davidic protection principle. You will have everything you need to accomplish what he has given you to do. And you can have confidence in that. And you can even say, he, he will cause, he will cause my work to prosper and my desires as they are according to his will and his purposes, they will prosper. Uh, the other day, at our kind of, you know, Shepherd's Conference light uh, live stream video event that was attended by 12 people, um, John MacArthur said it well. Someone was asking him if he was sad for his grandchildren who would have to live in this horrible world. He said, basically, no. On the contrary, he said, it's kind of thrilling to think of being a Christian called by God to do whatever he has called you to do in the time he has given you, regardless of what the season is, regardless of how bad the world is around him. He'll be with you. And that's all you need. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how bad the world gets. If God is on our side, if God is with us, he will provide for us. He will make promises to us to provide everything we need as long as he needs us here. A final takeaway about God's provision. Not only is, not only is it personal, not only is it promised, but notice, notice, so important. God's provision is funneled. It is funneled. Yes, he makes promises, and he is always present with us. But have you noticed the ordinary, real-life means he uses to accomplish his purposes, his provision? He uses people, like Jonathan. God used David to show mercy to a city called Keilah. God used a priest on the run to provide direction to David. God used a servant of Saul, a servant of Saul to pace his steps just right to stop Saul in time with the Philistine army. And God used, most importantly, right at the center, God used a friend of David to encourage him when he was in desolate places. Notice all the delicious ironies of this narrative passage and of God's provisions. Saul's efforts to use his own children against David, see 1 Samuel 18 through 19, actually serve to help David. Because Saul goes to his son, Jonathan goes to his daughter, Michal, and says, hey, kill David. And they, of course, go to David and they say, hey, run, right? Or how about this? Saul's priests in 1 Samuel 21 through 22 help David thinking they are acting out of loyalty to Saul. Verse 14 and 15 of 22 tell you this. And notice Saul's vicious anger and bloodletting against this priesthood in chapter 22 for how they helped David actually serves to give David more guidance. David gets the ephod. 
And even the Philistines, who I'm pretty sure, by the way, don't want to help David the Goliath killer, end up being used by God in the very act of pointless evil to save David. Notice all of the delicious ironies there of the people God uses. And the application is simple. Don't discount the part you get to play in God's gracious, provisional purposes in other people's life. Actually, it's kind of a lesser to greater argument, right? The saying goes, if God can use a donkey, or if God can use the army of uh, Philistia, I think he can use me. How much more, how much more, if God will use people who are working against him, how much more will he use people who are seeking to honor him? How much more will he use Christians who are studying their Bibles, trying to be prepared in season and out of season? People who are trying to live out his word in their world. People who are seeking to speak his words of truth to people in evangelistic settings. Christians who are determined to rely solely on God's word to answer questions and problems in a counseling crisis situation. It's, it's lesser to greater. If God can use the Philistines for his purposes, how much more will he use a person with a Bible to encourage, to strengthen, to support, to protect? Also, one more thing. Don't discount the part your supposed enemies can play in God's gracious, provisional purposes. Who, who, who are our fellow believers? Yes. Who are our fellow believers if God is our God? They are sources of grace and provision to me by my God. But who are my enemies? Who are the people that are opposed to me? If God is my God, they are instruments. They are servants of God's sanctifying purpose in my life and God's glorifying purpose in this world. That is an incredible thought. That is a thought that encourages and strengthens right from the center. God's faithfulness is in the middle of this story. And God's faithfulness is in the middle of every single day of your life. Let's pray. Our God of faithfulness, who calls us to, to work, but also who provides us great provision in mercy and grace. We thank you for your word that speaks to us right where we are and encourages us as it shows us who you are every single time, 100% faithful, sovereign, mighty, powerful, always accomplishing your will. Pray that you would bless us this week through your word and through the hearing of it and through the application of it into our own hearts and lives. In your son Jesus' name, amen.